Well, good morning. I just came from the Hispanic church and uh, ran, in the, ran over there in between the services. And uh, man, I tell you, it's rocking and rolling. That, that place is full house and a very exciting time. As in a little while, the elders here will be ordaining Ben, as Mike prayed, as in his full-time role as pastor of the Hispanic Church, which means he, he's on staff here at Fellowship Bible Church. So he'll join now the rest of, of us crazy ones in our pastoral meetings and different things. And, um, and um, so, again, thank you for, I know many of you have participated in prayer and helped with the, with the facility over there. It's located behind the Grand Furniture building there. And um, they are really excited over there uh, this morning. We'll, we'll give you a report next week about, uh, about some of that. So anyway, God is doing some neat things, that's for sure. I wish he would bring spring. Um, I've, I hear on good, re, good account that uh, it is coming, and I know you gardeners can't wait to get your hands dirty. I know you're chomping at the bit to getting those flower beds and those other, you know, garden beds and, uh, and, and get, your, get your work done. My wife is the, uh, g- the green thumbs in our family. And even in the blustery cold, she'll go out there and stare at the perennials and wondering if there's some green coming on them and then uh, come back by the fire and sketch out her plans for the next planting and all that stuff. Um, you know, they say a garden is, um, it's kind of like an autobiography, it, it tells a lot about its creator. Uh, I don't know if you ever thought of it that way. Irma Bombeck once quipped um, that uh, be careful, uh, don't go to a doctor whose office plants have all died. There might be uh, some good advice there. Now, that doesn't always hold true. That is that a garden is an autobiography. And then the passage that Mike read for us, these opening verses of chapter 5, that would be certainly the case. The first uh, few verses of Isaiah chapter 5, is, um, it's a poetic parable put to a song. Isaiah, as it were, is singing a song to a beloved friend who has planted a vineyard. And it goes through and he explains just what a, what a choice vineyard this was. He planted the vineyard, it says in the last part of verse 1, on a fertile hillside, on a fertile hill. Um, some, some of, I think, Isaiah's best uh, literary creativity comes out in these verses, in these opening verses. Literally, the, the phrase there for a fertile hillside, it's kind of a strange phrase. It's a, word, it's a phrase that means, he planted a vineyard on a horn, the son of fatness. And our translators think, well, what does that mean? Because they really never, I don't think, figured it out. So our translations will say something like a fertile hill, which was the poetic idea I think Isaiah was trying to communicate. It was the, a hillside, like a horn, a son of fatness. This was the ideal spot. He looked around and found the, the, the best place for his vineyard. He dug all around it. He removed the stones. He carefully worked the ground. He put a a tower there where he could guard his vineyard. He watched over it carefully. He hewned out a a wine vat because he knew it was going to be producing these these choice choice grapes. It says in in, uh, 
verse 2, the first part of verse 2, he planted it with the choicest of vines. The Hebrew term that Isaiah uses there is a, is a word, um, it's a word sorek, sorek grapes. And again, our translators don't know for sure, I don't think, what sorek grapes were. Maybe back in that culture 2,800 years ago, it was a particular um, hybrid or a particular type of vine, a noted vine that produced the best grapes in that particular region. It was the, and so our translations put the choicest vines. He put great care because the last part of verse 2, he expected it to produce great grapes. He was waiting for them to ripen, and he had his wine press, all that, all ready to go. This was the pride of Judea. And then, as it says in verse 2, it only produced worthless ones. Some of your translations will say wild grapes. The root word there is a word to mean to stink. And you may even have a note in your margin that says these are stink fruit. (laughs) He expected the choicest of grapes, succulent, the best of all. Why, it would be noted throughout the region, this vineyard was the best of all. And then he checks it. It, it, They don't even really produce grapes. It was something that was putrid and, and smelled. They were stink fruit which leads the singer in this poetic song to ask this question in verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done? Why? When I expected it to produce good grapes, it just produced stink fruit. He's calling the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of uh, Judah in verse 3, judge between me and my vineyard. I've done everything possible. A vine dresser could do no more, selecting the the choicest ground, removing the stones, making sure everything, putting in the best plants. What is is a, a farmer to do? What is a vine dresser to do? What more could I have done, he pleads. Why did stink fruit come? Well, Judgment is going to fall. Verse 5, so now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'm going to remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I'm going to break down its walls, and it'll become trampled ground. Animal, wild animals are just going, to, just going to run through it, and I don't care. It'll lay waste, verse 6. It will not be pruned or hoed. Briars and thorns will come. I'm just going to leave it go. I'm going to turn my back. I've got to walk away from this thing. In fact, I'm going to charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. I'm finished with my vineyard. And now Isaiah speaks in verse 7 and gives the interpretation of it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Oh, who's the vine dresser? It's Jehovah God. Who are the plants that were planted? It's the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plants. And thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. It's like he's leading the people along in this, this poetic parable of song. 
like a strumming troubadour, he sings about the beloved and he plants this vineyard. He uses all these choice phrases and terms and the people are, oh, what a wonderful song. Wait a minute, stink fruit? And then he lowers the boom and he says, yeah, and it's you, chosen people of God. And he hammers them. Last part of verse 7 is also interesting. That Isaiah, again, his literary uh, creativity doesn't come out in our translations, but it says the last part of verse 7 that God looked for justice. I've planted these vines, and he, he looked for good fruit. I looked for justice. It's the word mishpat. And all I got was mispak. It's a play on words. I looked for mishpat. And behold, miscut. I look for tzedakah, righteousness. And behold, sanaka, a cry of distress. It's to draw attention. As Isaiah writes this to Judah, to God's chosen people, something is desperately wrong. The Lord God has made a very solid case for coming discipline, for coming destruction. He has showered them with his grace. There's nothing more that he could ever do that he's not already done. Century after century, he has poured out his favor upon these special people. And time and time again, they've turned their back. Judgment was going to come because all they have yielded is stink fruit. And starting in verse 8, he gives a list of what that stink fruit, what that, what, those rotten, what that rotten fruit consists of. It's a major portion of chapter 5, verses 8 through 23. And it's a series of woes, six woes. And they're written, again, for instructional purposes to bring out the, the emphasis of the passage, it's written in what's called a chiasm, a chiastic structure, which means he's going to mention three woes, and then he's going to backtrack and repeat them. So it's like A, B, C, and then C, B, A. It looks like this. Social injustice. It's a stink fruit. Then B, hedonistic carousing which leads to C, spiritual deception, insensitivity. And then he backtracks and repeats it. Spiritual deception, hedonistic carousing, social injustice. Let's look at verse 8. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room so that they have to live alone in the midst of the land. In my ears, the Lord of hosts has sworn, surely many houses shall become desolate, even great and fine ones without occupants. He starts with the woe, with the stink fruit of social injustice. Here are the wealthy people who have gobbled up land, who have pushed out the poor. Now they're living on all the wealth of this land to the detriment of their own people. In their pride, in their hubris, They've elevated themselves. Social injustice. And so a little judgment is interspersed. Verse 9, in my ears I heard the Lord say. It's like God came down and whispered. 
I'm going to leave them desolate. There will be no houses or people living in them. For 10 acres, verse 10, of a vineyard will yield only one bath of wine. A bath would be, uh, it's a measurement of, in, say, roughly, say, 8 to 10 gallons. I'm going to plant 10 acres but get a pittance in return. I'm going to, I'm going to plant a, a homer of seed, and it's only going to yield one-tenth an ephah of, of, of harvest. In other words, unproductivity desolate the land will be. That's judgment of God. Here's the second woe. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may pursue strong drink, who stay up late in the evening that wine may inflame them. Their banquets are accompanied by lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and by wine, but they don't pay attention to the Lord. We move from social injustice to hedonistic carousing. They're drunkards. They wake up, pursue their own hedonistic pleasures. They stay up late. They're a bunch of partiers, revelers, living a debauched life. Judgment is going to come. So he inserts, starting in verse 13, some more judgment. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge, and their honorable men are famished. Their, their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth without measure, and Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it. Again, such creativity as Isaiah writes this. Oh, here, here are the people of God. They're enjoying their festivities and their banquets and their, their gluttonous debauchery. They're drinking themselves. They're opening their mouths and they're just guzzling and drinking to fatness. And God says, Sheol, death is going to open its mouth. It's going to open it wide. It's going to gobble all you up and you'll descend into it. Death becomes like it were a... a, 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 a a hideous monster with a voracious appetite gobbling up God's people in judgment. So the common man, verse 15, will be humbled. The man of importance will be brought low, abased. The eyes of the proud will be abased. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. And the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. And then the lambs will graze as in their pasture. The strangers will eat in the waste places of the wealthy. In other words, where are the people? They've been taken away into judgment. All that's left are the... Are the are the picturesque pastures with sheep grazing and no one to attend to them. Judgment was coming. The people were going to be destroyed. Then he repeats it. We've got social injustice and hedonistic carousing. You've got spiritual um, Deception. If you go back to verse 12b, he says, but they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those whose eyes, 
who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Spiritual deception, spiritual insensitivity. They call good evil. They call evil good. There's no moral compass to them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know where to turn other than to themselves. And they scoff at God. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, clever in their own sight. It says in verse 22, Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. So here again is the hedonistic carousing. Again, a play on words. They're calling heroes, champions, valiant men. They're nor- terms that would normally be left for uh, great uh, men of renown, warriors. Who are these heroes? Who are they calling champions and valiant men? Bartenders. They're mixing drinks. They're drunkards. That's who they're elevating. Hedonistic carousing. There's such sarcasm here with Isaiah. And then in verse 23, who justify the wicked for a bribe, take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. And so we come back to the idea of social injustice. A, B, C, C, B, A. Hedonistic carousing. Social injustice, hedonistic carousing, spiritual deception. What remains? This is the stink fruit. God says, after all I've done, how carefully I've I've raised up my people. I've given them everything they need to follow me. And this is what results. Judgment is going to come. Verse 24, therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blown away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And on this account, the anger of the Lord has burned against his people, and he stretched out his hands against them. He struck them down, and the mountain quaked. Their corpses lay like refuge in the middle of the streets. And some scholars think that he's referring to an actual earthquake that may have taken place. And he's pointing back to that as the judgment of God, but he's saying his anger has not been spent yet. Look at the last part of verse 25. All his anger is not spent, but his hand is still stretched out. In other words, more is coming. And what is said, starting in verse 26, would strike fear into anyone of that day and age listening to the words of Isaiah. It says that God will lift up a standard to the distant nation and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth and behold, it will come with speedy swift, will come with speed swiftly. God is going to raise a signal flag to some distant country. It's time! And he's going to sick them on his people, the Jewish people. It says this advancing army that comes with speed. It's the Assyrians, probably. Verse 27, no one in it is weary or stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps, nor is the belt, their belt, uh, uh, the waist undone, nor their sandals strapped broken. Its arrows are sharp and all its bows are bent. The hoofs of its horses seem like flint and its chariot wheels like whirlwinds. They're coming, they're coming, they're coming. 
Its roaring, verse 29, is like a lioness, and it roars like young lions. It growls as it seizes the prey and carries it off with no one to deliver it. And it shall growl over it in that day, and he changes the metaphor, like a roaring sea. And if one looks to the land, look, behold, it's darkness, distress. Even the light is darkened by the clouds. The vineyard of rotten stink fruit is destroyed by the very vine dresser that so carefully cultivated it, planted it, cared for it. He's going to use the Assyrian army in judgment. He, God, ultimately, is the lion that will roar. Now, there's so many verses in this chapter 5 that just stand out. And I, I, for me personally, I just want to mention four of them that just hit me. The first one is back there again in chapter 5, verse 4. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done, already done? God had given Israel every spiritual advantage. Take, keep your program in bulletin in Isaiah 5, but turn over real quickly to Romans chapter 9. A very telling passage. Paul the apostle writes in Romans chapter 9 of his heart that was breaking for the Jewish people. But it, is there anything you are so passionate about you would give your right arm for? I mean, literally. Is there anything you are so passionate about that you would be willing to die for? Yogi Berra said, I'd give my right arm to be ambidextrous, but that's another, <laughs> another topic. The Apostle Paul not only was willing to give his right arm, he was not only willing to die. Look what he says, verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. And when a person writes that way, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. It's like what I'm about to say is so preposterous that you may think I'm not telling the truth, but I'm telling you the truth that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. It was always in the back of Paul's mind, this unceasing grief. What was it? Verse 3, here's his prayer. I pray, that's, it's the common word for prayer, I could wish that I myself were accursed. It's a word anathema. It means to be damned, eternally separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's not only willing to give his right arm or his very life, he said, I wanted to crawl into the depths of hell. I'll forever be damned if my people would just come to know Jesus. And then he gives a list of all the privileges. He says, I'm talking about my kinsmen in the flesh who are the Israelites. Not the Hittites, not the Jebusites, not the Greeks, not the Romans. One nation, one people of all the peoples on the face of the earth that have ever lived, one nation was blessed with a special favored status before Almighty God, and it was Israel. They're the Israelites, he says, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory. No other nation had the glory 
the Shekinah presence, the Shekinah glory of God. It was Israel that was blessed with the very throne room of God over the Ark of the Covenant in that inner sanctum of the presence of God, and it shone. They had the glory. They had the covenants, Abrahamic, Davidic covenant, new covenant. They had the giving of the law. There's the Old Testament, the people would say of the nations, there is no nation like Israel. There's no God like Israel's God who gives such law, the laws of God. They stood out above anything. They have the temple service. Only Israel had the opportunity to approach a holy God through the whole temple service system. And they have the promises. They have the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, from whom is the Messiah, the Christ. It's the Christ that, that, through Israel that came. And it's not just any Messiah. The last part of verse 5, the tenth blessing and privilege of, of Israel, it is the Christ who is God, blessed forever. Not just any man was coming to lead the Jewish people. God incarnate was coming to lead. Paul is saying, this is the privileged position that Israel had. This is what Isaiah is saying. God had given Israel every spiritual blessing. No other people on the face of the earth had these blessings. Oh, except you and me, the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would say infinitely more. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he has blessed us. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter writes in 2 Peter, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have been blessed beyond measure. He's given us his Holy Spirit who resides within us. It's just a, a down payment, a foretaste of glory divine of the coming kingdom. Every born-again believer in Jesus Christ has the presence of God. We don't go to a temple and experience the glory of God like the Jewish people did. The Bible says in the New Testament, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There is no people like you, like the church of Jesus Christ that has been so richly blessed But why then is there so oftentimes stink fruit that shows up in our life? And God, true to his character, will discipline his people today. As Hebrews reminds us, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father's spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We are the, as it were, the, the new vineyard of God. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a, a, a special precious plant that he has sovereignly placed in his garden, in his vineyard. 
And he does so because he wants good fruit to come. That's what he expects. Not stink fruit. We have been blessed beyond measure. What more could God give us than he's already given us? Why, he asks. Why? Why does Mark Carey do some of the stupid, and they're not stupid, they're sinful? Why? Here's a second passage, verses 12 through 13. But they do not pay attention to the deeds of the Lord, nor do they consider the work of His hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. Where does that stink fruit come from? Where's it, where's it coming from? Why is this happening? Because is, Israel was ignorant of the ways of God. God had warned them. We won't take the time to turn there, but Deuteronomy chapter 8, when they go into the promised land, land f- flowing with milk and honey, God has, I said, I'm going to bless the socks off you when you go in that promised land. But when you enter the land that's flowing with milk and honey, don't forget me. Over and over again, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, and they forgot him. We saw it in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 5, verse 20. Moral deception, they call evil good, good evil. They substitute darkness for light, light for darkness. Moral deception. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, he said, an ox knows its master, a, a donkey knows where its master is leading it, but my people, Israel, they don't know me. A stupid ox, a, a dumb donkey knows but my people are are ignorant. They they have forgotten me. Verse 24 and 25, it says, For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They've despised the word of the Holy One. Hosea, who was a contemporary of Isaiah, Hosea is writing up to the northern kingdom of Israel. And Hosea writes, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. God says, Because you have rejected knowledge, so I will reject you. Folks, the same is true for us today. Are we growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Parents, is your number one priority in raising your kids to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord to know Jesus? Not to get the best education, not to get into the best college, not to get the best job, but to know God. Believers in Jesus Christ, are we growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord? You look over Paul's prayers in the New Testament, his prayers to the churches at Ephesus and Colossae and Philippi. You know what his number one prayer is? I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know him, enter into a deep, full, intimate knowledge of, of God. Romans 12, verse 2, Paul warns, don't be conform to the world's way of thinking. Don't be squeezed in to the world's way of thinking. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What do we know about God? What do we know about His ways? Are we growing in the understanding of our Lord, of our God? 
the problem with Israel was that they were ignorant of his ways. They had forgotten his word. They despised it. It's so easy today to be squeezed into the world's way of thinking. We're bombarded with all the social medias of the day. And subtly, like the, like the frog in the kettle, as it boils, we get caught up in a, in a worldview that is so contrary, so that even, even born-again Christians today who are going to heaven, I won't doubt that, born-again Christians today are living such ignorant lives that they will actually celebrate gay marriage. Born-again Christians today who actually will elevate a woman's right to choose as a higher good than the life of an unborn baby. Born-again Christians today who will embrace a mindset that says, God must want me to be with this other person, so I'm going to divorce my spouse because this, if loving her is right, it can't be bad. I've heard it. I've seen it. Born-again Christians who actually think that a little well-placed anger now and then can, can accomplish the righteousness of God. You guilty of that? I raise my hand. Ignorance. Born-again Christians that hold to a belief that the highest good in life is my personal happiness and not God's holiness. Born-again Christians who can justify almost anything calling good evil and evil good. Oh, are we ignorant of the ways of God? Here's the third verse that stuck out to me, 15 and 16. So the common man will be humbled and the man of importance abased. The eyes of the proud will also be abased, but the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. Verse 21, he said, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. You know what the problem is? We get lulled into sleeping, into a, a, a mindset that says, I'm at the center of it all. Uh, so we elevate ourselves in the place of God. Proverbs says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And so it's a proud heart that ignores the Word of God. It's a proud heart that says, you know, an hour a week on a Sunday morning is sufficient. My, you know, I can, I, I'm doing pretty good. I can handle life. It's a proud heart that thinks only of oneself, amasses wealth, takes care of oneself to the detriment of those disenfranchised in poverty. God wants us to trust Him, to live our life in such a way that we he prize our hands open and we give it to Him. He asks us to humble ourselves, to admit to Him, I can't live this life, God. I need you. I need you every hour. Every hour I need you. Martha Snell Nicholson wrote it this way. One by one, God took them from me, all the things I valued most, till I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost. 
And I walked earth's highways, grieving in my rags and poverty, until I heard his voice inviting me, lift those empty hands to me. And I turned my hands towards heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. It's a humble person who realizes God will take care of me. And so I will serve him and I will trust him. I won't live for myself. And humility and brokenness follows God. Here's a fourth verse, and we'll close with this. In verse 26, it just struck me, the power of this verse, when he said, he will also lift up a standard to the distant nations and will whistle for it from the ends of the earth, and behold, it will come with speed swiftly. Let's make no mistake this morning. God is the sovereign Lord of the universe. God is the sovereign Lord of the nations. And he whistles. And one leader is brought down, and another leader is raised up. Oh, don't think for one moment that Donald Trump is in charge, or Putin, or any other one of the world's leaders. There is a sovereign God who reigns in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. Proverbs 21.1 reminds us the king's heart is in the hand of God. And like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Later in chapter 14, Isaiah is going to write these words. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? Oh, he's given the God of this world a measure of sovereignty to do his bidding for a time. And then he will whistle, and the heavens will open, and the king of kings will come on that white horse with his church and put it all right again. God is in charge of your life. God is the sovereign Lord, whether we recognize it or not. He's the keeper of the vineyard. And even though he allows us, his people, in our free will to make the choice, will I obey him today? Will I please myself today? In the final analysis, he will always have the final word because he's God. He's the Holy One of Israel. He is the mighty God of all creation. And if that doesn't leave us a bit unsettled, then we're not understanding him rightly. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, conduct yourself with fear 
while you journey through this earth. It's time, I think, to, to quote again from the most quoted part of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Peter and, and Edmund and Susie and Lucy are visiting Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're told about Aslan, this, this Christ figure that Lewis puts in there. He's on the prowl, and Lucy asks, is, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I, I, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, well, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. There is nothing safe about Almighty God. The writer of the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. If there's one message that comes from chapter 5 and this preface as it it's wrapping up this preface to the book. We should come away with this understanding. A holy God cannot be trifled with. There's nothing safe about Almighty God. And so, as Peter wrote in his second epistle, what manner of man and woman ought we to be? You may be born again, heading to heaven, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And today, as you sit there, you have been living for yourself. And the vine dresser is asking, what, what more? What more could I have done? I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. I've given you my Holy Spirit. You're a child of the King. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Why the stink fruit? Someone here today may need to do some business with God. Yeah, that's called getting right with God. Because a holy God is not to be trifled with. As even Isaiah, the great prophet, will find out as we see next week in chapter 6. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that your spirit would 
exposed within each one of us that way that may seem right unto us, but it's a way of destruction. A way that maybe we've been deceived, an attitude, an action, a way of living, a compromise, some area in our life that, Father, needs to come under your sovereign lordship, that we would pray in the depths of our being, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way, for you're the potter and I'm just a piece of clay. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here today that you're speaking to right now through the convicting work of your Holy Spirit, that they will either seek out a, a Christian friend, a, an elder, a pastor, somebody that they will come and, and deal with the issues of their life. Because, Father, you are the sovereign Lord. And there's no one other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's in your name we pray. Amen.